get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Volkbaum. And in our last episode, we kind of laid the groundwork about what Bitcoin is, kind of refreshing your uh, your memory, and also the the breaking news at the time of recording about the possible identity discovered of the, the guy who, who came up with the whole idea in the first place. Uh, Satoshi Nakamoto, who yeah. might in fact be a guy named Satoshi Nakamoto. And this was a surprise. So if you missed that episode, go back and give it a listen. Yeah, because it'll it'll uh, definitely give you some uh, context for what we're going to talk about today, which mm-hmm. is the controversies of Bitcoin and also what's in the future, yo? That's a that's a really great question that many people are asking themselves because there have been so many controversies of over Bitcoin, especially in the past like three to five months. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, they're just the very nature of Bitcoin, the fact that you get at the coins by either purchasing them at an exchange or you mine them through using computer power to solve mathematical problems. Well, if you're thinking, hey, I've got a computer, I can solve math problems. Well, you, if you listen to our last episode, you know that you need a lot of computing power because they're, you're just, you're, the competition you're up against is crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so some people will join mining groups, uh, sort of like a, almost like a lottery pool, like right. we were saying in, in the last episode. And some people force other folks to join a mining group without them necessarily knowing about it. By creating botnets, aka, uh, you, you might have also heard of botnets being referred to as zombie computer armies. Yes. These are the, uh, boy, if you're a longtime fan of tech stuff, you've heard us talk about this. This was, one of our first episodes, but essentially what this is, is when a hacker uses software to get uh, administrative access to someone else's computer. You, generally, this is done by fooling the person into installing a program. And then Some that, kind of malware. Yeah, there's usually a Trojan horse malware that will install a a, uh, a backdoor access point for uh, for someone to go over a network and then send commands remotely so that they make your machine do stuff they want it to do. And there are lots of different ways that hackers use botnets. And one of them is to direct computers to mine for bitcoins. So what they're doing is they're trying to get as many different computers as possible to coordinate in this task. And then the hacker reaps the benefits. So your computer might have actually been the one to mine that Bitcoin, but you don't see any of that because it's going to some hacker somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one particularly widespread bit of malware like this was was busted back in April 2013. Jonathan actually blogged about it back then. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's it's still one of those things that remains a concern because it's, you know, it's the world of the digital realm. I mean, it's it's one of those things where you've you, it's different from our physical world. Right. Uh and as we alluded to in our previous episode, the fact that all of this is different from our physical world lends bitcoins. I mean, that and the fact that they are necessarily decentralized and unregulated mm-hmm. means that sometimes people use them for uh, less than upright purposes. Yeah. OK, so we're going to we're going to lay it down, uh, you know, just be perfectly honest and blunt here, because when uh, when I did an episode way back in the day. I think it was in, was it 2011? I think we said in our previous episode, but we kind of danced around it because we didn't really want to address it very much, but it's very much something that we have to talk about. And this is markets that would support illegal trades and illegal would depend heavily upon where you happen to be in the world. Cause I guess, you know, laws are different in different places, but absolutely largely this was, uh, uh, 
mostly focused on drugs, illicit drugs. So uh, the the famous market was the Silk Road. Now, the Silk Road, first of all, it took took its name from a, a historic trade route that connected Asia to Europe. Right. And the idea was that this was a market where buyers and sellers could meet anonymously, have these transactions. Bitcoins were accepted there. One of the few places that Bitcoins were accepted, one of the earliest, too. And uh, and you it was a tour hidden service. So this meant that you could actually log in and you don't have to worry that you're being tracked or that your identity is out there for everybody. So it was kind of a haven for this sort of activity, so much so that uh, that the illicit activity made up the majority of the things you could buy on the Silk Road. You, it wasn't just illegal stuff. You could buy legal stuff, too. You could go to the Silk Road and buy clothing or computer parts and things like that. Uh, sure. But um, one report from The Guardian said that drugs were up to 70 percent of what was available on that market. Yeah. At that point, you're like, I'm going to an illegal drug store that also has a computer aisle. That's essentially what you're talking about there. So, I mean, and here's the thing. You'll see Bitcoin community folks, some of them, not all of them. I don't want to paint everyone with a broad brush. Certainly not. But there were some who would say, look, this is just a free market. The fact that drugs are there is that's irrelevant. We're talking about this is where merchants and buyers can uh, get together and exchange goods. It's meant without government interference on that level. Sure. I mean, that that uh, intellectually, I can understand what you're saying, but practically 70 percent of the stuff there was illegal. So when you when you strip away the philosophy and look at the reality, you have to be you have to be intellectually honest and say, all right, there these things are being done uh, to to purchase illegal goods. Now, you might think that those goods shouldn't be illegal, but that's a totally different issue. That is a whole other discussion. Yeah. Um, and at any rate, in October of 2013, the FBI got pretty deeply involved. Yeah, they arrested a man named Ross William Ulbricht on charges of drug trafficking, computer hacking, money laundering, and here's the big one, soliciting murder. Oof. Essentially assassination. Wow. So uh, they they ended up arresting him. They claim that uh, Ulbricht is the man behind the Silk Road, uh, that he was using the handle Dread Pirate Roberts, uh, you know. I do not think it means what he thinks it thinks it means. But uh, <laughs> at any rate, they arrested him. They claimed that that, that he was the guy behind the Silk Road. Ulbricht, for his part, denies it. Uh, and the FBI shut down the Silk Road, uh, although almost immediately Silk Road 2.0 popped up into its place. Uh, certainly. But shutting down the system froze all of all of the bitcoins that were in circulation in that community, in the market, in yeah. the market right, which was some 3.5 million U.S. worth at the time. And the fact that the FBI seized that amount of Bitcoin means that they are one of the largest holders of the currency in the world. Yeah. Nakamoto and the FBI. Boy, that'd be a great children's book. <laughs> at any rate. Uh, so, yeah, there were a lot of people who were not happy about this, including the ones who started up Silk Road 2.0. And Dread Pirate Roberts was active again, presumably on being controlled by a different person, assuming, of course, that Ulbricht was, in fact, the original Dread Pirate Roberts. So Silk Road 2.0 on February 13th, 2014, made these would-be drug dealers unhappy a second time because they announced that they had been the target of hackers and that the escrow accounts of the Silk Road 2.0 had been cleaned out of $2.7 million worth of Bitcoins. Uh, following Silk Road 2.0 was another market called Utopia, which uh, uh, not only 
allowed for the sale of drugs, but opened it up to guns as well. Because when you're called Utopia, that's the, really the clear <laughs> avenue. Yeah, no, yeah. That's, I, I think there might have been some irony there. Uh, anyway, they were also shut down just days after the site launched. Uh, uh, the police held a sting operation and shut that one down. Now, here's the thing. Um, as soon as one of these markets goes down, I'm sure other ones pop up because the demand is there. Oh, absolutely. So until you get to a point where uh, either the demand is not there or people feel that there's just not a, too, there's much too, risk. too much risk and yeah. not enough reward, then it's just going to keep happening. However, decentralizing it, you could argue, is um, a worthy cause if you believe that shutting down this kind of thing is a good good plan. Right, right. There are people in the Bitcoin community who say, hey, this shows that Bitcoins work because you can shut down the markets that aren't playing fair and everything else can keep on operating. However, the rest of the world is saying this is a currency where the the markets can get shut down and then all your money goes away, which can, of course, reduce confidence in that currency. So these these uh, events are hurting Bitcoin in the sense that its value can suffer because people feel less confident of it. Uh, it can, but that's not always the, the practical outcome of this kind of thing. And we'll talk a little bit about that later on, I think. Um, yeah. m- meanwhile, in November of 2013, in response to all of this hubbub, it was basically right after the FBI had, had shut down Silk Road mm-hmm. uh, 1, um, the U.S. Senate held a hearing on Bitcoin and the general potential of virtual currencies. The Federal Reserve Chairman at the time, Ben Bernanke, released a letter ahead of the hearing that acknowledged that um, that the government, you know, of course, does not have authority to supervise virtual currencies like Bitcoin, um, but also said that this kind of stuff, and I quote, may hold long term promise, particularly if the innovations promote a faster, more secure and more efficient payment system. Um and that that idea, along with general curiosity about it, seemed to really be the moral of, of this of this Senate hearing, which was really interesting to me. Um, there was, of course, concern raised about Bitcoin being used to drive crime. But the fact that people in the government were open to the concept and then thought that it was pretty cool and not only, you know, to be used as a marker for stuff that should be shut down. I think it's great. Yeah, there's a um, there's a. There's an unequal distribution of savviness in the government. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And we're going to we're going to cover a little bit more of that in just a second, uh, because, you know, some people, they get it. For one thing, you know, once you open a door on the Internet, that door's open. Right. I mean, even if you try and remove everything, it's once it's on the Internet, the idea is out there. And as we've said, Bitcoin is not the only digital currency out there. Right. And digital currency certainly is poised to be very disruptive. Uh, and you know, this Bitcoin is kind of the, the perfect example of how disruptive it can be in the extreme. It doesn't even have to be that extreme to be disruptive. So, uh, it's interesting. And, and that, that Senate hearing where we had senators talking, frankly, about this kind of stuff lent a lot of legitimacy to Bitcoin in the eyes of the community and, and really the, the world outside the community. A lot of people who were curious about this currency, but didn't know a whole lot about it. Uh, however, that does not mean that we suddenly entered a, a beautiful dream state in which no one was using Bitcoin for nefarious purposes. And sometimes uh, they may or may not have been fully aware of how nefarious they were. So Charlie Shrem is a he's a former head of a company called BitInstant who was on a trip. He was uh, for the la- past couple of years been living a pretty lush lifestyle, a lot of whining and dining, flying around. 
uh, this fellow from Brooklyn was living the high life. And the reason was he was using, you know, BitInstant was this company that was uh, kind of a handler for Bitcoins, could could facilitate uh, Bitcoins and, and really acting as like a, a, a transaction house. Now, he was arrested as soon as he got off a plane under charges that he had uh, committed conspiracy to commit money laundering. And also he failed to report suspicious activity. Plus, he had a charge of acting as an unlicensed money transmitter. Now, all of those charges are from uh, his alleged business with an un- uh, with a man named uh, Robert Faella, who uh, was ac- accused of being a Bitcoin merchant who was working with drug dealers to buy and sell items on the Silk Road. And so it's kind of a uh, there's an email exchange between Shrem and Faella that's the the key of this case. That uh, so Faella's approach was that he was trying to to transmit large amounts of money in bitcoins and the law is still trying to catch up in the united states particularly but across the world in general uh, with the existence of bitcoins and how is that handled in transmissions when it's not actual u.s dollars right and in general if you're considered you're considered to be a money transmitter once you reach a certain level so a lot of people were telling shrim hey you know let's let's make the 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 top amount, a thousand bitcoins. You can't transmit more than that because more than that, you're going to get attention. You're going to attract attention, yeah. And then they're going to say you are an unlicensed money transmitter, which in fact is one of the charges. Uh, but this guy, Faella, was doing a lot of business with them and eventually Shrem, I guess, was feeling really pretty comfortable with the whole thing and they were possibly uh, uh, transmitting as much as uh, 10,000 or more bitcoins oh, in a week. Wow. So, yeah. yeah, it eventually got the the attention of the uh, the government and uh, they went after him. Yeah. So, although uh, part of that Senate hearing included the canny observation that that cash is probably still the best medium for laundering money. Yeah, and in fact, that was uh, that would come back in February 2014. Uh, following this whole bid instant and and Shrem thing, a U.S. senator proposed that the United States put a ban on bitcoins, uh, which doesn't work when you're talking about decentralized virtual currency. Yeah, you can't really ban something that isn't technically uh, legalized in the first place. But in this case, it was funny because, you know, you had other senators saying this doesn't make any sense. And in fact, I propose we ban currency because, (laughs) as it turns out, currency is often used for illegal activities. In fact, if you look at currency of the U.S. dollar versus the Bitcoin Boy, dollars are used in crime way more frequently. All the time, every day. So we got to get rid of that. And that was, I mean. That's was, about where that, that news story yeah, ended, I think. It was very much a kind of, uh, uh, you know, wah, wah, sad trombone kind of moment. Then we get to the hacking stories. The the the, the bigger hacking stories, because we previously mentioned. Um, the, Silk the, Road 2.0. Uh, well, no, and also the uh, the botnet kind of sure. stuff of of individual hacking, but um, but there is of course hacking of bigger fish, uh, bigger money fish. Yes, exactly, because Bitcoin, the currency, they they're very quick to say that the peop- the the keepers of the Bitcoin are quick to say that the currency itself is not what has been hacked. Sure, it's not someone has figured out how to unravel the Bitcoin so that they can make copies of it, which was one of the big fears Concerns, about digital currency. Right. Yeah, because people think, hey, if I download a song, I can make copies of that song for all of my friends, which is exactly what the music companies don't want me to do. But I'm totally going to do it anyway. What would stop me from doing the same thing about downloading a Bitcoin and then making lots of copies? So that has remained safe. However, 
institutions that are dedicated to handling bitcoins have not had the same level of safety and security. Absolutely. So one of the big ones, you've probably heard it. Uh, it was a Japanese company called Mount Gox. Which was originally a Magic the Gathering card exchange. Yeah. That's so weird. But at any rate, I believe it was in January of 2014. Oh, man, this was a big one, right? This was the one where they were robbed. Hackers had managed to exploit a security vulnerability in the Mt. Gox exchange. Now, an exchange, think of an exchange as a place where you can exchange currencies. So you could uh, purchase bitcoins or you could sell off bitcoins at this exchange. They would base the value on whatever the market would bear at that time. Well, the hackers had been able to exploit a, a security vulnerability for the course of a couple of years, actually. Uh, it was just that the Mt. Gox folks kind of figured it out eventually, uh, gradually, and then, then the news broke, and then that's when everything really fell apart. Uh, yeah, February 2014, by the way. I, I mistook that January. Well, it had certainly been happening before well, February, uh, yes. but, but it wasn't announced till, till then. Yeah, and, and it turned out that they lost 750 bitcoins that belonged to customers, plus an additional 100 bitcoins that belonged to the exchange itself. And uh, at the time, that was about a uh, half billion dollars worth of bitcoins. Oof. Uh, at, at if you took it at the that the the value of bitcoins in U.S. dollars at the time the news was announced. Keeping in mind these thefts had been going on for a while as hackers had found this vulnerability. Right. Uh, so that was pretty much the end of Mt. Gox. At least, maybe not the end, but it certainly sent them into the equivalent of bankruptcy in Japan. Right. In fact, the CEO had to. Uh, step forward and bow and apologize to uh, to customers because that's the that's the custom in Japan. And the uh, last I heard, the plans are that he will step down once a a suitable replacement is found for him. There are other companies that are even in worse shape than that. Uh, yeah, just a couple weeks later, Flexcoin, which which is a, a kind of bank for bitcoins, um had to shut down after being hacked and and losing how many eight eight hundred ninety six bitcoins? Yeah, yeah. It, now by this time, the value of those bitcoins were less valuable than the ones from the previous one because Bitcoin had taken quite a hit in its value. Uh, so yes, there were more bitcoins stolen in the Flexcoin story, but they were, uh, you know, they weren't worth quite as much. Yeah, they were oddly they were worth less because uh, confidence was lower, um, and. It also was a, you know, bank in quotation marks because. Well, it's not technically a bank because yeah. it is necessarily uninsured. Yeah. Um, that's, it, you know, it, that's part of the whole anarchist package. Right. It's not it isn't beholden to some government agency or some other corporate entity. And so because they weren't insured, there's no way to re- to to recover that, recover that money. Right. Yeah. So that money is gone. And as a result, the company is shutting down the only bitcoins that they retained were in what they called cold storage. They had two different styles of storage. There was a hot wallet, which was uh, called that because the the Bitcoins were active on network servers that were connected to the Internet. And the reason for that was so that they would be available for transactions. Oh, right. Because you don't want that transaction to take forever. Uh, You don't. You don't. You don't want to have someone to have to go physically hook a hard drive up to a server in order to access your Bitcoin every time. Um, but that cold storage is very much the Battlestar Galactica kind of, kind of the, the new, the new. Okay. I'm looking at you virgin. blankly. I'm like, what is, it, <laughs> is this big silver Cylon or is this sexy Cylon? By, 
Well, it, it, it's about sexy silence. Okay, but, right. okay. but, but, but I'm referring, of course, to, to the part in Battlestar Galactica, the new series in mm-hmm. which um, a few members of the government have started going like, you know, we really shouldn't have computer networks or large networks hooked up to other large networks because that's a terrible plan. For security. For security yeah. purposes. So and that's exactly what they were doing with cold storage in mm-hmm. that they were essentially having these on servers that were not connected to the Internet. And they said, you know, it's really hard to steal money when that money is not connected to the Internet. It's not impossible. You can use some social engineering and get direct access to the actual machine and be able to do it that way. Sure, but that is much more difficult. Yeah, that's Mission Impossible risky, as opposed to the net risky. Yes. If I could mix my (laughs) terrible Hollywood depictions of of stealing stuff. Anyway, FlexCoin uh, said it's going to work very hard to make sure that the Coins and cold storage get to the valid owners of that currency before they shut down totally. So you would think that because we're talking, you know, we're recording this in March 2014. We're talking about a story that broke in late February 2014. Clearly, we wouldn't have any more stories to talk about, about hackers getting access to bitcoins. Uh, yeah, no, we do. Yeah, because yeah. it turned out that this morning when I was looking at the news, one of the uh, items was that uh, actually it was this afternoon. It was even later than this morning. There was a company called Polon- Poloniex, P-O-L-O-N-I-E-X, Poloniex, I guess. Uh, they lost around 50 grand worth of Bitcoins uh, in U.S. dollars. Uh, the actual number of Bitcoins lost were 76.69. Like we said in our previous episode, Bitcoins can be divided down into teeny tiny numbers. Mm-hmm. They lost 76.69 Bitcoins, which represents about 12.3% of all the Bitcoins they had in storage. So their solution temporarily is to reduce everyone's account by 12.3% to distribute the loss across all customers. That's a terrible way of covering a loss. <laughs> right. You might think, but my money wasn't stolen, and now you're stealing my money. Now, it's supposed to be temporary. They are supposed to work at trying to recover uh, in some fashion the value of those Bitcoins and restore it to everybody so that uh, this distributed loss is not felt so keenly and that right. it's eventually restored. But yeah, you would imagine that this would probably make some customers a little miffed. Uh, certainly. I, I've seen some online responses to that miffedness um, of of people just going like, you participated in a currency designed for thievery and you were surprised when it attracted thieves. And yeah. I think I think that that's a little bit harsh, um, but perhaps an interesting point. Yeah, there's a there's more than a little smack talk. But, uh, you know, we've got some more we want to say about the crazy shenanigans, what goes on with this crazy currency. But before we do that, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor. Now, we mentioned before that one of the other controversies, or or at least one of the other concerns about Bitcoins, is how do they fit in with the world of taxes? Because it's a decentralized currency. It's not dependent upon any government. However, you are doing using it to do business you may be doing business, at least, you know, the, the equipment you use may be within the confines of a particular country. I'm pretty sure you haven't figured out how to put a server someplace beyond the reach of all law. Uh, right. Most most servers are not physically in the clouds. Yeah. Maybe you found some way. Maybe you bought an island and it's your own little sovereign nation, in which case you can skip forward a little bit in this. If but, it does, call us because that sounds like an awesome party. Yeah. Especially if that island's like somewhere near the equator, I will totally go. But anyway, the uh, the 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 problem here is that governments don't really know how to deal with this properly in the in the sense of how how would we tax 
the use of bitcoins? Could we tax it? Should we tax it? I think most governments say, yeah, we should totally of tax it. Of course that. we should tax uh, it. Now, what, what is not beyond question is making money through the exchange of bitcoins. Because if you are exchanging bitcoins for other currencies and you're making money that way, that's something that the government, at least in the United States, will totally tax. Uh, right. The old buying low selling or yes, buying, buying low, low selling, selling high. high. Yeah. No, you had it right. I had a moment of terrible doubt. Yeah. Well, I, I do whenever I look at the markets. This I, is why I don't play the stock market. No, sure. probably. No, playing is the right word for it. Uh, yeah. So the idea here, of course, is that if I if I invest in bitcoins, like it, in, I'm not mining, if I'm actually uh, using them as a like a commodity exchange, right? Yeah. Right, like yeah. I, I've purchased or not as an exchange, but yes. Yeah. I've, I've purchased some bitcoins using U.S. dollars. Uh, so now I have the equivalent in bitcoins available to me and then the value increases over time. And then I sell those bitcoins to get U.S. dollars again and thus make a profit. I could be taxed on that. So that's in in the future we may see taxes being applied more broadly across different types of transactions. Mm-hmm. So so that's that's another problem with bitcoins in general and uh and the biggest one is kind of related I think because it's all about the the volatility of that market of the exchange market of of how much a bitcoin is worth in um forgive me but real dollars. Oh sure. Yeah, well or just value. You could just say what's the value of a bitcoin? What can a bitcoin get me? And the truth of the matter is that changes so quickly and so dramatically, even over the course of a day, that it's hard to answer that question in a meaningful way. I mean, we've seen Bitcoin's value go from around a dollar per Bitcoin U.S. to twelve hundred dollars U.S. per Bitcoin. Uh, yeah, yeah. In the span of 13, 2013 alone, um, it went from between twelve and thirteen bucks to uh to $1,242 per coin on November 29th, uh, and then had crashed back to under 600 by late December. So in other words, here's here's how I want to put this. I, I, my argument that I always make, and I've made it multiple times, and I, I've debated this with other people in the technology space, I say that Bitcoin's not really a currency. It's more like a commodity. It's more like investing like in gold. Like a stock. Yeah. yeah. It's something where... You know, it, it, you could use it to exchange, but that's almost more like bartering than, than a currency because the value changes so dramatically. Well, although, I mean, any, any money that you're using is a little bit imaginary and is, and you're technically only sure. bartering with it. But again, then one of the benefits of having a regulated currency is that the government can take steps to try and keep the value as consistent as possible. It doesn't always work because there are situations where, you know, inflation will get out of control. Maybe, uh, uh, due to external circumstances, that does happen. We've seen it happen across the world. Uh, certainly, but I, I, I guess the thing that you're arguing, and and it's a fair argument, is that if you if you're going to believe in a money system, then the more uh, official and grounded that belief is. Uh, so the example I have here is: let's say that dollars behave the same way that bitcoins have behaved over the last couple of years, and I have a five dollar bill in my hand, and I'm peckish. And I decide I want to go out and buy myself a slice of pizza. Mm-hmm. So I go outside and there's a pizza vendor and he's selling slices of pizza and it's five dollars a slice. And I think, well, you know, that's I'm hungry. It's exactly what I want. To me, this slice of pizza is probably worth the five dollars. A little more than what I would normally pay, but OK. But that's OK. Sure. So I, I hand over my my hard earned five dollar bill and he hands over his hard earned slice of steamy pizza. And then I devour it and I go on my merry way. The next day, the value of that $5 bill 
now has the equivalent buying power of what $500 would have gotten me the day before. So in other words, it's still a $5 bill, but now it can buy $500 worth of stuff. Yeah. From the previous day. From the previous day. So, so in other words, I just, in my mind, I'm thinking yesterday I bought a $500 slice of pizza. I, no pizza in my life has ever been that good. And I've been to Sorrento, Italy when I had amazing pizza there. It was not worth $500 a slice. I can, I can imagine some really good truffle oil. I don't know, but you know, yeah, I, yeah. I, I, maybe $12. Maybe <laughs> if I were feeling like, like hoity toity, this is like a, 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 you know, a chic place and I'm there Fancy to be pizza? seen. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But not $500 a slice. So the, the point I'm making is that the volatility makes you nervous about spending the currency. I would, I would be reluctant to spend my bitcoins for fear that I would miss out on the next giant jump in value so that if I ended up, you know, having like three or four bitcoins and I'm thinking, oh, wow, this is worth $55 United States money. I'm going to I'm going to exchange it now. And then a year later, it's worth thirty six hundred dollars. I would be a little perturbed at myself. I'd be upset. And it discourages people from using it as a currency. They might use it to invest and they might hold on to stuff. And some of the markets we talked about, some of the illegal markets might use bitcoins for currency because of the other. It's easy. Yeah, it's yeah. easy. But it it's, you know, if the very basis of your currency discourages you from using it, then it's not successful as a currency. That's not the fault of Bitcoin itself. The fault of that is with the market because the value of something is based upon its demand. If demand is high, the value is high, especially if you compare it against the supply. If the supply is low and demand is high, that thing is valuable, mm-hmm. right? And in some cases, we see things that manipulate markets so that you have an uh, artificial value on something because it looks like supply is low and demand is high, even if supply is also high. Diamonds, Diamonds? anyone? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you ever want to really get disillusioned, look into the diamond business and see how there is no shortage of diamonds. And yet they're being treated like they're this incredibly precious resource. I think I, I'm nearly positive that one of our fellow podcasters here at How Stuff Works has done an episode on that. Yeah. Um, and I know that there are articles on HowStuffWorks.com right. that, that go into deep detail and they are they're it's, fascinating it's insulting and upsetting and terrifying. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, and it's it's the kind of thing where it behaves like. Like a stock, like a commodity. And, uh, you know, after the news about Mt. Gox broke in uh, in February, on that exchange at any rate, before it was shut down totally, uh, the, the value of Bitcoins dropped all the way down to something around $220 per Bitcoin. Um, that's, that's, that's pretty dramatic. Yeah. Uh, since then on, on most, uh, U.S. exchanges, it's, it's hovering right around, uh, $680 or, it was as of Tuesday. Right now, it's around six hundred and sixty dollars because that's how it does. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the thing is that you see these stories, too. And these stories start to mount up. And there are two big uh, pathways that people have started to say, this is what Bitcoin is going to go down. And they are two pathways that go in opposite directions. So you have one population saying the currency is robust. It can survive these controversies. It can survive all these problems. It's not the currency's fault that the bank was robbed. Just as you would say it wasn't the dollar bill's fault if someone robbed a physical bank and stole dollar bills out of it. You would say it was the bank's fault for not having the right security to meet up with the the challenge of fighting off these robbers. 
Same sort of thing, you would argue, the, these institutions didn't have the security to keep it safe from hackers, but the currency itself was perfectly fine. Uh, so those people say, everything's going to be fine. We're going to weather the storm. It'll actually end up proving that Bitcoin is a viable uh, currency. Legitimate currency, right. And that in the future, this is something we're all going to be using. Um so you still have the the faithful who really believe in that. I'm sure many of them probably hold quite a few bitcoins. Uh, sure, and and I am honestly, it has surprised me that in the face of Mt. Gox and uh, all all of these other robberies that have happened recently, mm-hmm. that the value of Bitcoin has not permanently plummeted, yeah. or or more permanently over the course of two weeks. Plummeted. Right, right. And and part of this is you know again the value is all based on perception. If everyone loses confidence in bitcoins, then the value will will plummet, like you said. But it's only if people lose confidence in it. If people don't lose confidence in it, if they kind of roll with this, then bitcoin will remain valuable. It's all based psychologically. So there are other people who say, eh, you know, bitcoin is just doomed to fail. There's an article in New York magazine. That was all about the cult of Bitcoin. Ouch. Yeah, it's a really long article. It's very critical of Bitcoin and the Bitcoin culture uh, and also includes a quote from a computer science professor at Cornell named Ermen Gansirer, uh, who said that uh, Bitcoin at the moment is in a slump with a community that has become its own parody. The Bitcoin masses, judging by their behavior on forums, have no actual interest in science, technology, or even objective reality when it interferes with their market position. They believe that holding a Bitcoin somehow makes them an active participant in a bold new future, even as they passively get fleeced in the bolder current present. Burn. Sick burn. Yeah. So uh, these two camps... Obviously, very much in disagreement about what the future of Bitcoin will be. Um, honestly, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm frankly like you, Lauren. I'm kind of surprised that the value hasn't taken a harder hit than than what it is at right now, uh, based upon this. I would think that people's uh, confidence, confidence would, would be so shaken, yeah, yes. that they would have all pulled out or pulled out more so. Anyway, at, at least the people who aren't like the hardcore Bitcoin community members, like the the ones who are really who have who have totally bought into that philosophy, that ethos, I can completely understand them being like dedicated to the very end. Hugging right? it like a, like a cold computer teddy bear. Yeah. Yes. And the investors who are more likely the ones who they are interested in are the, playing the market yeah. who, are, who are using it to their advantage as a curiosity. I could see them being the ones who really are, have lost the confidence and want to get out. It's, it's, it's not because they don't buy into the philosophy or the ethos. They're buying into it as this is the like money. gold. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, um, but they, but they haven't or not enough of them have. At right. Any rate. So it'll, it'll remain to be seen which of those two pathways happen. And again, uh, we will eventually not, not in the very near future, we will eventually cover other digital currencies uh, and talk about those and how they are similar to and different from Bitcoin. And uh, I, I do think that we're going to see some digital currency. We may see uh, government regulated digital currencies as well. Who knows? We could have lots of competing currencies out there on the global market. And uh, it may be that it'll take years before it settles into something that is you know, stable and reliable. It may very well be that we have fractured currencies where 
If you want to buy things off one market, then you need one kind of d- digital currency. In another market, you need another. For us video gamers, we're used to this because <laughs> you can't use Warcraft dollars to buy stuff in EverQuest. What I what I really hope comes out of all of this hubbub is a um, greater interest in and understanding of cryptography and its potential use for monetary systems. Because whether or not you you want to uh, buy into this this counterculture movement, I think that it's a really terrific application for making things more secure. Exactly. Yes. And uh, of course, with quantum computers right around the corner, cryptography is going to become more and more of a challenging field all on its own. But that's another podcast. So we're going to wrap this up. Guys, if you have any suggestions for future topics we can tackle here on Tech Stuff, let us know. Send us a message on many of the social networks we're on. That includes Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. We have the handle Tech Stuff HSW. Or if you're old school and you like sending those emails, you can send us an email with the address techstuff at discovery. And Lauren and I will talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 